Thanksgiving week to you all. I want to show my appreciation, extend my appreciation and gratitude to Scott McIntyre for helping us lead worship this morning. Really appreciate him, by the way. Yeah. Some of you might know Scott. Uh, he and his wife, Christina, attend the church. You know, if you want to know more about what's going on in their lives and their ministry, you can go to scottmcintyre.com and it kind of traces his journey from, you know, um, Basically, his birth up through, many of you might know him from, you know, American Idol, some of his health issues, things like that, and God just has given them a really special and unique ministry. So, scottmcintyre.com, check it out if you want to follow him. All right, quick update on the building. So, <laughs> so here's the deal. Um, one inspector didn't show up, and the other one got sick, and this is a short week. So, join me in praying for Jason. You ready? <laughs> God, please, please give Jason patience and hurry up. Amen. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, everybody. So two weeks ago in chapter 7, we read some amazingly vulnerable words from the Apostle Paul. And like I said, in my mind, this is one of the great Christians in all of Christendom. He gave us much of the New Testament. And as he reflects on this inner turmoil, he makes a statement that I think every honest Christian can relate to. In Romans chapter seven, verse 15, he says this. For I do not understand my own actions because I don't do what I wanna do, but I actually find myself doing the things that I hate. In other words, he's perfectly describing that inner tension that we feel. We have this desire to do what is pleasing to God because we know in the end it is in our best interest. These are the things that give us life. But we find ourselves actually pursuing the opposite. And then he makes this declaration about himself. Drop down to verse 24 and he said, wretched man that I am. In other words, this is Paul saying, I'm at the end of myself. Last week, I put it like this, flesh cannot conquer flesh. You need something that transcends flesh to conquer flesh. Then he goes on to say, who will set me free? Who's gonna save me from myself? And that's the right way to phrase the question. He says, who, not what? Help comes in the form of a person. Then he identifies that person. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of God. What is flesh? We mentioned it, John talks about it in 1 John. Lust of the eyes, uh, the, this, the boastful, arrogant pride of life, lust of the flesh. If it looks good, get it. If it feels good, do it. If it has anything to do with elevating yourself above those around you, feeding your pride, your arrogance, your hubris, whatever you wanna call it, pursue it. Those are the things that are at war within us. The victory is found in Jesus Christ. 
How so? Well, that's the foundation. Without Jesus, you're in trouble. You're never gonna be able to break this cycle of frustration in your life. He's the foundation, his death, burial, and resurrection, because without the resurrection, there's no hope of life to come. Also, without the resurrection, what that means is Jesus is powerless. And as he's gonna talk about in a second, that's the great hope of your life, Christian, what is to come. But what makes you think you have life after death if Jesus doesn't have it himself? If he doesn't have that power, you don't have it either. That's why the Christian is so hung up on this resurrection story. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it very bluntly. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians should be pitied. It's exactly right. So it all starts with the foundation of what Jesus did. But then there's something more that you receive, Christian. Paul goes on to say, well, in the first seven chapters, he mentions this transcendent supernatural power only twice. And then in chapter eight, he refers to it 20 times. What am I talking about? The spirit of God. That is the supernatural power at work in your life. And so because of the spirit's work, there is literally this victory that can be had that without the spirit, you're never, you're never gonna achieve. So chapter seven is the battle, chapter eight is the victory. He says this in chapter eight, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. What have you been set free from? The law of sin and death. And in verse four, he adds this. So therefore, you should walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we mentioned that the Greeks used this word walk to describe the course of one's life. And the, everybody on the planet, according to the Bible, can be divided into one of two walks. You either walk according to your fleshly desires or you walk according to the spirit's desires. Now, question, what does the spirit desire for your life? Well, we actually have a spiritual yardstick by which you can measure that. It's found in Galatians chapter five. You know it is perhaps the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. If you have the last one, you probably have them all, and that is what? Self-control. That's the way the spirit leads the walk of your life as opposed to the flesh and how it wants to lead the walk of your life. All of humanity can be divided into one of these two camps. Additionally, Paul goes on to say that we have been placed in this very unique family. It's a spiritual family. And because we're in this new family, we've been given a new identity. He elaborates in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is that Aramaic word, and it's a term of endearment, affection, and it means dad or daddy. There are only three people on this planet that can call me dad, nobody else. And when my kids wanna mess with me, I don't know if your kids ever do this to you, rather than say dad, they'll say, they'll use your first name, right? Hey, Jason, it's dad. Dad, that's the term of affection, but it also carries something more. Abba also is a title of respect and reverence. And so the spirit of God within you places you into this unique family, the spiritual family by which you can literally call the creator of the universe your dad. And you have all the rights and privileges. It's not like you're some outsider that's just sort of kind of been invited in. No, it's like full ownership within this 
family. Now, one might think, well, this is great because of what Jesus did and because of the Spirit's work in our life, we have this new family, this new identity. So then, does that mean everything in our life will go well? Will we then be absolutely free from life's problems or distractions? No. Some were raised in families with tons of drama. It's the holidays, everybody. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Research shows more people look forward to the holidays ending than starting. Why? In a word, family. Family. And so Paul says, you've been placed into this unique relationship with God as a full-fledged family member with all the rights and privileges. It may not be the same kind of family drama that you're used to having, although sometimes within the family of God there can be drama. But there is this newness that comes about that creates this relationship that is unlike any other in your life because you have access to the author, creator, sustainer of all life in a manner that is actually one of affection and endearment. But that doesn't mean things will be smooth sailing for you or that the seas of your life will be calm. And so what Paul launches into next is this discussion of the reality of human pain. And he contrasts it with what is to come, Christian. Because you're in this family, you have a new relationship and identity and a new future. You will experience pain and heartache, but there's something that you have awaiting you that is better. Uh, he says this in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you are saved, the Spirit of God confirms that you belong to God. Whenever you see the word spirit and it has a capital S that refers to the Holy Spirit, lowercase s, human spirit, the Holy Spirit within you working in your human spirit, spirit affirms that you are in the family of God. Then you are also children and heirs, heirs of God, and look at this, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we, here's the word, suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing. You can't even compare them to what is to come with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is very, very honest. You have to love the sobering honesty with which the scriptures are written. He says, listen, it's not all smooth sailing once you come to faith in Christ, you're placed in this new family. Uh, the world is fragmented and broken, and because of human sin, it's gonna be difficult. You have a desire to follow Jesus, the Spirit of God is within you, and times will still trouble you. There will be hardships and heartache. And by the way, nobody knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Listen to his testimony. He says this in 2 Corinthians. Now, just imagine this, all right? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So what is that, 195 times. If you were to see the Apostle Paul you would see the scars on his body. I mean, this dude is disfigured for Christ. 40 lashes minus one. At 40, they were, they were trying to take your life. 
At 39, they're trying to prolong suffering. You ever been like hit with a stick or something? You ever been hit with a towel? Like you're goofing around with your siblings and like, ah! 40 minus one times five. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We'll put this in its proper context. I know Snoop just gave up weed. You know what I'm saying? He just, that's the headline this week. Snoop just gave up weed. You hear, you want to know why? He said literally because he wants to be a good grandfather. I love it, man. You know, it's like things happen as you age. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That's terrifying. Some funky stuff in the ocean, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, look at this, in hunger and thirst. Did you realize Paul was often without food? In cold and exposure, the physical sufferings this man had to endure. And apart from the physical stuff, apart from other things, on top of that, there is the daily pressure of me, of my, notice the word, anxiety. You know the Bible speaks to anxiety? Paul says, I'm anxious for all the churches there are physical pains, and those are difficult, especially when they're persistent and chronic. But I think there are worse pains. There are pains of the mind and pains of the heart. And that's the source of your anxiety. And very often, pains of the mind and heart involve relationships. Paul had this dude in his life, good man, named John Mark. And at one point, Paul, and this is Paul, Paul was, you know, type A, church planter, driven. And he says, I'm not so sure I'm down with John Mark. There's some dissension in their relationship. And Paul says, I'm leaving. There were Christians who were speaking about Paul and saying things about him that weren't true. People within the church. That's some heartache. You know, you, you, you'll have people wanting to stab you in the back. You just don't expect it from within the family. That's the pain of the heart. And some believers have had it worse than Paul. And so here's what he says. He says, I consider, that Greek word means to think deeply. He says, you know, I thought about these struggles, the physical pain, the heartaches. And when I think about those, I remember what is to come. And there is no comparison. I cannot even begin to compare my suffering. Okay, hold up, man. 195 beatings. You know, you're hanging out with Paul and you're like, what's that noise? And Paul's like, well, that's my stomach growling because I haven't eaten in a while. It's nothing. 
can't even compare it to what awaits me in eternity. C.S. Lewis famously said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, promises, God always keeps his promise. Consider them, promised in the gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but he would find them too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, what he's saying is you're making all the wrong exchanges. Your heart, ambitions, they're set on the wrong things. And You see, what's happening is your hands are muddied and you don't even realize it. And if you understood, if you, if you considered, if you thought deeply about what is to come, boy, would it influence the way you live here and now. What you long for, what you cling to, what you pursue, what you find your identity in, all of those things are subjected to what God has placed in your heart and that is eternity, what awaits you. Now, here's the thing about this. This expectation of what is to come isn't just for humanity. It's actually found in nature. Look at this, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's this, this creation is now being personified. And it awaits for the revealing of this new humanity, right? this new, this, this eternal life for mankind. Those who believe in Jesus, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, which means pointlessness or meaninglessness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So now something happened that, that subjected, that created this awful, fragmented, broken state within nature itself. That's what he's saying. So what was it? Well, he's gonna tell you in a second. But there is hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we don't yet fully have this eternal state in all of its glorified possession, but then also nature doesn't have it either and is waiting for it. Nature is waiting to be restored. Set free from its bondage to corruption, for we know that the whole creation has been, this is very vivid languaging, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ladies, as you give birth, as you're pushing that life outside of you, what do you do? <laughs> there's a groaning, there's a straining. There's more to this word. I'm gonna explain it to you in a second. It's extremely vivid. Here's what he's saying. Before the fall, the earth was immensely productive. It is now, even more so then. In the kingdom come, it will be a garden of Eden-like state restored. And so what he's describing is this environment that was free from sin's corruption and curse. Genesis chapter three, God says, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam and Eve, because of your sin. See, sin is never contained. It's never just you. It affects those around you. And in this moment, it actually affected nature. So now in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're gonna be sweating in order to get your food, Adam and Eve. It's not gonna be easy for you anymore. Why? Because there's gonna be thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So here's what he's saying. Nature now fights against itself. 
the thorns and the thistles are now going to choke out your food supply and you're gonna have to sweat. You're gonna have to start working for what you eat. It wasn't like this previously. So see, the nature now has become corrupted. I think this extends to animals as well. Uh, I, I think that uh, even in the animal kingdom, there is a, there, there's an aggression and a fury that we see now that perhaps wasn't there in the garden. Uh, I say that because in the, the kingdom come, animals get along. Like animals that would normally eat each other here and now, they actually live peaceably. You know that little chihuahua that's getting real nippy, that's got like big dog attitude and wants to bite everybody? Because he's always like anxious, you know, and he's got like, yeah. <laughs> like in heaven, he's gonna be chill, you know what I mean? No dog is gonna wanna bite you in heaven. It's Garden of Eden restored. And, and by the way, this is no new information. It's not like Paul is inventing these things and people are going, oh, I've never heard this before. Newness, new creation, new heaven. No, because 2,700 years ago, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and he said this, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not even be remembered. They, they won't even come into mind. This is what the world is eagerly, the planet, nature is eagerly waiting for. Okay, so this word, eagerly waiting, it's a really, really interesting word. It's a compound word in the Greek, and part of that is kata, which means head and neck. And it literally describes a straining forward to look. For example, a couple weeks ago, I was driving west on Shea, right off the 101, and they had three lanes going down to one. It was very slow going, and clearly there was something ahead that was obstructing traffic. And so you're just kind of, you know, inching your way ahead, and you're waiting, waiting. So eventually I got close enough, and everybody's doing this. They're straining. What's, what do we call that? They're rubbernecking, right? And so as I get closer, I realize, oh, looks like a silver car. My daughter's car is silver. And get a little bit closer. Like, wait a minute. That's a Honda Civic. That's a silver Honda Civic. I'm like, my daughter drives a silver Honda Civic. I'm getting, as I'm getting closer, what am I doing with my head? <laughs> it's out the, my neck is here, my head is out the window. You know what I'm saying? It was the same year. Same make, same model, same color as my daughter. As I'm slowly rolling up, I'm straining to look ahead. That's what he's describing, Christian. If your neck isn't sore because you're not considering and thinking about what lies ahead, you've got some unsettled things in your life right now, unnecessarily so. Paul says, I can't even make a comparison between what I'm suffering now and what I will receive in the life to come. No comparison. The, the imagery is even more vivid because he says it's like a mother going through the pains of childbirth. I've never had a friend say to me, 
Jason, my wife, we just had a baby. Can I show you some pictures? So this is the picture of my wife in labor. I don't wanna see that. That's not what you show. You show pictures of the baby. That's where the joy is. I wanna see the, I wanna, I wanna see a mom going. <laughs> I wanna see a baby in its mother's arms and the mother is just, she's glowing. You strain and you look ahead. It's like the pains of childbirth. And eventually that child is born. And what is it? It's nothing but pure joy. And then the child becomes a teenager. (laughs) And then there's even a further straining for what is to come that's better. Here's what's interesting. Uh, It isn't just creation that is looking forward. Paul explicitly says we do too. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We already have been placed in the family of God. We already have adoption, but we won't understand the fullness of that adoption until we receive our glorified bodies. It's like Paul, you know, he's like, I'll tell you what, man, I'm super hungry right now and I'm not sure where I'm gonna get my next meal, but I'll tell you this, in heaven, I'm gonna feast. Well, I'm having this earthly discord between a brother, but I'll tell you what, in heaven, that's gone. That will be no more. I have a good friend, we were hanging out together and, and uh, he said to me, he's going through some unique personal pain. And he said, Jason, I'm ready to go to heaven. He's like, I'm just ready to go. And there's part of it where you're like, yeah, I kind of I get that, you know? You, you want to be set free from the things that just weigh you down. Eagerly look ahead. I think you see this, uh, this kind of groaning even in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus is sick and dies and there's this conversation that begins between Jesus and his friend Mary, who is also the brother of Lazarus, John chapter 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You're too late. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her are also weeping, Lazarus, the family, good friends, they're all crying. Lazarus is dead. He was deeply moved in his spirit. And look at this, Jesus was greatly troubled, moved by the grieving emotions of those around him. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And, and so as, as he's there, arrives, Jesus begins to cry. He's moved. So the Jews said, look, look at the emotion, look at the tears rolling down Jesus' face. He loved him, he loved him. Life is filled with loss, heartache, and so our hope is in the life to come. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So if you hope for something, there's an expectation that it will come to you. But then when you receive it, there's no longer a need for hope. You've already gotten it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. One of the reasons why the world is so twisted right now is because they live in, people live in such a hopeless state and you cannot survive. You will be so undone if you don't have a sense of hope in your life. 
hope for your future, but also hope in answering the, the big question. And the big question is this. What's gonna happen to me when I die? We, life tends to be one long effort just to put that off. Don't wanna think about my mortality. And then someone close to you dies and you get slapped in the face with it and then you start thinking, it's gonna be me. And then what? So the mass of humanity thinks in the end it'll all work out. My good will outweigh my bad and God or some supreme being will throw open the gates of something glorious for me. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. You cannot save yourself. There is no other way to be saved. That's why Jesus had this struggle, his own anxiety in the garden. If there's any other way, what's he saying? Any other way to redeem mankind, Jesus is like, let's do that. But then you see a spirit-filled prayer because what he follows is, your will be done. Your, your will be done. Okay? Um, the, the, the earth groans, we groan, but the spirit of God also groans. Look at this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we did not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the spirit searches the heart and knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's what he's saying. Sometimes there are moments in your life where you are hurting so bad, Christian, you don't even know how to pray. The Bible speaks to that. The prayer literally is, spirit intercede for me because I don't even know what to say. And the spirit will always pray according to the will of God. Jesus modeled it, not my will, but your will be done. And I believe that the spirit will do its deepest work in your life and in my life when we are at an absolute loss to help ourselves. You ever find yourself in that pit and it's so dark and so deep and you're like, ah, where am I gonna turn? I can't get out of this on my own. And that's when the spirit of God floods you with that intercession, knowing your heart, the mind of God, the heart of God. The spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, this is with the follow-up, verse 27. Because we have the Bible, we know the will of God. The spirit of God knows the will of God. The spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God, putting it all together, and this is the outworking, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is a long word that simply means that you would be holy, you'd be set apart, you'd be different. And then what's interesting is he, he actually targets what might be one of the most difficult things for us as humans. Notice the quick follow-up. What does he mention? And then he specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. Obviously, it goes without saying we live in a very sexually charged world, if I, could, if I had a magic wand and I could remove one vice, what would it be? It might be porn because so many other, uh, there's so much collateral damage that happens as a result of porn. Your sanctification, that you would be like Jesus. First Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All circumstances, those that are wanted and those that are unwanted. And it's the unwanted circumstances that cause growth as you yield your human spirit to the spirit of God. So then you can thank God for whatever outcome he chooses to have as you understand your place in his family as a child. And God will not allow something to come into your life that 
is meant to destroy you. And if that's what you're thinking, if that's where you're at, just know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. And more so, what's wrapped up in that struggle is your ability to overcome it through the Spirit and experience a deeper holiness that wasn't there before. And very often, pain is God's megaphone. So even in your struggles, you can be thankful it's Thanksgiving week and that's not something we often declare. But it is a unique truth within the Christian community. So I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. I think anytime we open up the scriptures and we talk about the things that are meant to give us life, there's, there's always a, uh, there's a battle. It's a battle for your mind. And that's why I think Paul sets it up well by saying, I've thought about these things. I've considered them deeply. And when I do that, I have this realization that what is to come is so much better. So then, I will live today in light of eternity. And the things that would normally undo me, they no longer have that effect because I see them in their proper place. So Father, that's our desire. Our, our earnest desire, Lord, as, as Paul says, this is what our desire is, and yet at times our flesh, we battle that. So we pray for the Spirit's work in our lives, that we would be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, because you always bless the greatest likeness to Jesus. And that's what we want, your favor. When we have that favor, that favor spills out on the lives of others. Father, I pray for those in the room as we enter this holiday season, they're gonna need a special measure of your spirit's work. Perhaps the timing of this, this message is, is exactly what it needs to be, even beginning this week. Pray that you would do what only a supernatural, supreme, sovereign God can do. Use everything in our lives for our good, ultimately though, for your glory. We pray in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.